Section 7 of The Exploits and Triumphs in Europe of Paul Morphy, the Chess Champion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Exploits and Triumphs in Europe of Paul Morphy, the Chess Champion. By Frederick Milnes Edge. Chapter 5, Part 2 When the above match was only about half through, another was arranged between our hero and Altair, the former giving the odds of pawn and move. In conversation one day with some gentleman at the St. George's, Paul Morphy had expressed himself dissatisfied with Altair's having won a game from him, stating that he could give him the odds of pawn and move. This coming to Altair's ears, he stated to Mr. Hampton, the secretary of the club, that he felt confident Mr. Morphy could do no such thing, and that he would very willingly play a match with him, in a friendly spirit, to convince him to the contrary. Whereupon Mr. Hampton brought the cartel to Morphy, who gladly accepted it, and, the two principals being put face to face, it was agreed that a set of ivory club-sized Staunton chessmen should become the property of the winner of the first five games. Now Altair had been playing for months past those odds, P and M, with Mr. Staunton, holding his own against that gentleman, and he considered that if he, Mr. S, could not beat him, certainly Morphy could not. So confident was he of the result that he told the young American, were it not for my position, meaning as a clergyman, I would willingly play you for a thousand pounds. As far as he was concerned, Morphy, too, was confident. Before the contest commenced, he said to me, Altair may win two games, but he will not win more. And I would here notice his M's power of estimating an opponent's strength. When the preliminaries were settled with Herr Lowenthal, he stated to me, if I cared about betting, I would bet that Lowenthal does not win five games. Of course there will be plenty of draws, but he will not get more than four. On our way to Paris, he said, Well, now I am going to play Harwitz, and I would bet the same as I did about Lowenthal. And when he was preparing to meet Anderson, he awarded four games to the Prussian champion. In every instance he overrated his opponents, or, perhaps, I should rather say, underrated himself. The preliminaries were soon settled, all ceremonies, seconds, and etc. being dispensed with. The only condition, that I can recollect, was in regard to smoking. Altair observed that gentlemen could use the weed in the room where the match was played, but it must be in moderation, so as not to render the atmosphere insupportable. Altair gave a capital example on the first game. He sat down in front of Morphy with an ordinary cigar in his mouth. When that was nearly finished, he ordered the waiter to bring him a full-size regalia, cutty-pipe, and bird's-eye, followed the regalia, and then he left the room to fetch an immense meerschaum, from which he blew clouds worthy of Peter Stuyvesant and the Knickerbockers. Altair was thoroughly acquainted with the peculiar nature of the pawn-and-move game. Morphy, on the contrary, was less accustomed to those odds than to any other. In New Orleans he did not engage even players, or any, in fact, but such as he gave the knight, and much more frequently the rook. In New York he played a short match at pawn and move with Mr. Stanley, 
and that may be considered his introduction to such odds. I was, therefore, as much astonished as any one when I saw him make such short work of Altair, who never won a single game, and only succeeded in drawing two. I am afraid that this result seriously interfered with Mr. Staunton's fixing a day for the commencement of the match between himself and Morphy. It must not be supposed that our hero was devoting all his time to chess, or that the game was always uppermost in his thoughts. A foreigner, and especially an American, feels bound to visit all the lions of the English metropolis, and Morphy was no exception to the rule. I was almost constantly with him, and certainly no subject was less frequently referred to than chess. I have been amused with the conduct of gentlemen on similar occasions, who seemed to think that no other subject than that could interest him, and after pertinaciously confining the conversation to the game, took upon themselves to declare that it was the single thought of his life, so that, in England, he is looked upon as a chess automaton. In France they give him the very opposite character, complaining of his aversion for the game. Precisely the same thing was observable in their references to the peculiar style of his play. In England they considered him the very beau ideal of brilliancy, comparing him to MacDonnell and to Cochrane without his faults. In Paris, however, they characterized his game as solide, close, and analytical, not possessing brilliance like Labourdonnais. Although these Frenchmen, one and all, with the exception of De Riviere, forced their close openings upon him. Since Mr. Staunton's voluntary relinquishment of what he terms actual play, confining himself to consultation games and odds, Mr. Bowden is admitted to be the best English player. The bees certainly form a strong phalanx amongst London amateurs, numbering such names as Buckle, Bowden, Barnes, Bryan, Bird, but the first-named gentleman has long since quitted the lists. Mr. Bowden was no exception to the rule of English players, in their opinion of Morphy, on the latter's arriving in Europe. But he was one of the first to be convinced of the American's superiority, and, with John Bull honesty, immediately avowed it. The admirably conducted chess column in The Field is under his supervision, and his remarks therein on Morphy's tactics are too well known to require any comment from me. I have heard him state his conviction that no one could possibly be better adapted for the game, whether physically or mentally, and he, too, like Herr Lowenthal, ranks Morphy above all known players. In the month of January last, he drew my attention to one game in particular, between our hero and Anderson, stating that he was satisfied Labourdonnais would have lost it ten times over. Now it requires great courage on the part of any man to place a player beside Labourdonnais, much more above him. Herr Lowenthal says that he does not wonder that the chess world is so backward in giving Morphy the rank to which he is entitled. But few players are capable of appreciating his games, and it was only after careful analysis that he could form a proper opinion of them. He assured me that he has frequently been confounded at the depths of Morphy's combinations, whilst engaged in their work expressing his firm conviction that when a recollection of his games shall be placed before the public, the chess world will rank Morphy above all players, living or dead. The proportion in which Morphy had beaten Mr. Bowden was so great, namely five to one, that a prominent member of the St. George's remarked on hearing it. Well, I did not think any player living could win in such proportion. 
I remember a similar occurrence in reference to Mr. Perrin, the late secretary of the New York Chess Club, some weeks before the appearance of Paul Morphy in that city. In answer to a friend, this gentleman replied, That is the same as saying that a player could give any of us a piece, meaning the principal members of his club, who were considered about on par with each other. Now I don't think that Labourdonnais, even, could give me the knight. Morphy, nevertheless, after beating him at even, at pawn and move, and pawn and two, offered him the knight, which was accepted, for trial's sake. And out of five games there was a difference of the odd victory, but my memory fails me as to whether it was won by Morphy or not. Mr. Perrin will not feel displeased at my mentioning this fact, because it is pretty well conceded now that where any other player can give pawn in two moves, Morphy can easily give the knight. European celebrities, in making comparison with the strength of different amateurs, leave Morphy out of the question, and when they compare him at all, it is only with Labourdonnais. And very few of them, too, would scruple at taking odds from him. On the publication of his challenge to Mr. Harwitz to play a match at pawn and move for five hundred francs, Mr. Bowden stated in The Field, There is more than one English player who will be glad to meet Mr. Morphy on these terms. The majority of his games in London, Morphy played at the Divan. It was a general subject of regret, after he had vanquished the different amateurs in the capital, that Mr. Bird was absent in the North, and that the American might leave before that gentleman could visit London. Mr. Bird is a terrible fellow for attacking right and left. His game was described as the counterpart of Morphy's, it being added that he was just the antagonist our hero required. At last Mr. Bird arrived, and the result between the two was more startling than ever, Morphy winning ten to one. It is but just to state that Mr. Bird was somewhat out of play, as he himself observed, adding, however, that he never was a match for his antagonist. It gives me much pleasure to relate such instances as these, because, as a general rule, there are no more self-confident mortals than prominent chess players. It would be difficult to remember all the men with whom Morphy played at the Divan, or rather with whom he did not play, but I must not forget that merry individual, Mr. Lowe. It was in the Divan that Mr. Staunton played Mr. Lowe, that celebrated match at pawn and move, the play in which on both sides, as Mr. S. observed, was unworthy of second-rate players in a third-rate coffee-room because Mr. Staunton was beaten. Since that occasion, Mr. Staunton has slighted the Divan, but Mr. Lowe still flourishes there, ever ready to meet all comers, and if not nightly playing somebody, at all events nightly making everybody laugh. Mr. Lowe made trial of Morphy privately, immediately on the latter's arrival, and forthwith ran to the Divan to tell everybody, much to everybody's disgust, that not one of them would have any chance against the American. They all laughed at him, the only reply being, Oh, lo, you're a funny fellow. Before the Birmingham meeting, Morphy had met all the leading Metropolitan players, with, of course, the exception of Mr. Staunton. And yet, perhaps, I should not accept that gentleman, for our hero had played in two consultation games with him, Mr. S.'s ally being Altair, and Morphy's, Mr. Barnes, Mr. Barnes and Altair, are well matched. Both of these consultation games were won by Messrs. Barnes and Morphy. As the latter part of the month of August approached, considerable curiosity was evinced in various quarters as to whether Paul Morphy would then be a contestant in the tournament. 
Although not a Yankee, he nevertheless displayed as much cuteness under oft-repeated interrogatories as the downiest down-easter. Feeling what an important bearing his determination would have upon the expected match with Mr. Staunton, in a subsequent chapter will be found his reasons for not entering the lists on that occasion. He was well aware that his decision must necessarily produce considerable disappointment, but he was conscious that a tournament triumph is by no means an accurate test of strength. If chess can ever become a game of chance, it is under such circumstances, and only the sure criterion of the respective strength of two opponents is by actual hand-to-hand -hand encounter. But Morphy did not intend disappointing the Birmingham gentry altogether, and felt convinced that if he played six or eight games blindfolded before the association, they would pardon his absence at the opening of the meeting. After the tournament had got into the second section, he left London and arrived at Birmingham before the day's proceedings had fully commenced. I had the pleasure of accompanying him, and on our arrival at the college in which the meeting of the British Chess Association was held, we found quite a crowd in the commodious rooms provided by the Committee of Management. The president of the Birmingham Club, Mr. Avery, introduced the young American to the members of the association, and the cheers with which he was received were such as seldom come from others than Englishmen. Morphy advanced up the room without the slightest embarrassment, although his reception was as unlooked for as it was flattering. St. Amant, who was present, wrote a brilliant account of the meeting to the Paris journal Le Sport, and I am only sorry that I have not the article in question by me at the present moment. The style of the article, however, is indelibly fixed in my memory, reminding one of the lays of the old troubadours. St. Amant writes prose and poetry, and he has made of Morphy an epic hero. He tells the Parisians that the young American is no mere pale-faced boy, visiting foreign lands to increase his powers, but a citizen of the United States, who comes to claim a scepter in Europe. Then again, his walk is that of a king, and he advances through the crowd of strangers like a monarch receiving homage from his court. But he does not forget to state that Morphy is innately modest and that all his admiration has no bad effect upon him, for such has been the theme of every one who has been brought into contact with him. Most of the principal players in England were assembled at Birmingham in August 1858, among them Staunton, Lowenthal, Bowden, Bird, Kipping, Owen, Salmon, Avery, Hampton, the president of the association, Lord Littleton, Falkbeer, Bryan, etc., the prominent feature of the meeting was, of course, the tournament prizes of sixty and twenty guineas, for which Mr. Staunton and Lowenthal, St. Amant, Falkbeer, Kipping, Owen, Hughes, Bryan, Smith, Ingleby, Bird, Zabo, Hampton, Brettlestone, and Salmon contended. The sixteenth player was intended to be Morphy but not appearing in time he was ruled to have lost all further share in the contest it was matter for much disappointment that mr bowden did not enter the lists especially after the gallant fight he had made at the previous meeting of the association at manchester the final result was that herr lowenthal carried off the first prize and herr falkbeer the second and so far as the former gentleman was concerned almost every player was both astonished and gratified at the denouement it was only during the week preceding the Birmingham Festival that the Hungarian had succumbed to his youthful antagonist, 
and he had consequently entered on a fresh contest with all the disheartening recollections of defeat. A defeat, too, which he expressed his belief had seriously damaged his chess reputation. Prominent London players had criticized his games, with Morphy, in an inconsiderate spirit, the almost universal statement being that he had not played up to anything like his usual strength. The criticism on his moves in the widely circulated columns of the illustrated London news were cruel to a degree, slighting allusions being made to his bookish theoric, etc. Yet this old veteran goes down to the field of battle with unshaken courage, wins two games, one after the other, from Mr. Staunton in the second section of the tournay, and carries off the first prize in the teeth of fourteen able competitors. This result proved one thing beyond a doubt, namely, that Morphy's late triumph was the consequence of his superior strength, and not from mere want of practice and skill on the part of Herr Lowenthal. And it also verified the observation of Mr. George Walker in Bell's Life that Mr. Morphy beat Mr. Lowenthal because Mr. Morphy was stronger than Mr. Lowenthal. Oh, Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, what a rude way you have of putting naked truths before the public. Of course, Morphy was not allowed to twirl his thumbs in idleness, especially with so energetic a master of ceremonies as Mr. Avery. This gentleman soon arranged a contest between our hero and Mr. Kipping, the leading Manchester player, and exponent of the Evans Gambit. Mr. K. had the move, and played the opening he had so much at heart. Morphy accepted, under the impression that he too knew something about the Evans. First game scored by the American, the Manchester amateur thirsting for revenge. Morphy, in his turn, plays the Evans, and Mr. Kipping cries, Enough! No other single games were played by Morphy during the meeting, the leading celebrities present being engaged in the tournament. But our hero made up the difference by astonishing the natives with a display of his blindfold powers. When Morphy declared his intention, in London, to play eight games without sight of the board, there were very few who believed the thing possible. They knew that Labourdonnais and Philidor had played two or three games simultaneously, and that Kieritsky and Harwitz had repeated the performance in later times but there was a wide leap from three to eight antagonists. Harwitz had earned a great reputation in Europe by his blindfold prowess, and was regarded without a rival, although many other players, such as Anderson, de Riviera, etc., had occasionally met two or three antagonists at a time. Here was a coil. This young champion of the West, not satisfied with vanquishing all the chess veterans of England over the board, prepares to cast forever into the shade the most astonishing performances of this and past ages. Well might St. Amant declare that it was enough to make the bones of Philidor and Labourdonnais rattle in their graves. I well remember Paul Morphy's first blindfold contest in New York. It was on the occasion of Paulson's playing against four antagonists without sight of the board. Morphy offered to be one of his adversaries, and to meet him on the same conditions, and somewhere about the twentieth move he announced Maiden Five, much to Paulson's astonishment, who did not think the crash was so near, although well aware he was going to the bad. Mr. Paulson got such an insight into Morphy's blindfold capabilities that he subsequently observed to me, Mr. Morphy can play as many games without seeing the board as I can, only he is so unwilling to lose a game. 
It will here be well to mark the differences between the blindfold performances of these two gentlemen. Both of them see the boards in the mind's eye equally well, but there the resemblance stops. Paulson's contests average fifty moves, whereas Morphy's seldom extend beyond thirty. The former is a ballista, the latter a rifle bullet. What each is over the board, he is with his back turned to it, and there are many, even in Europe, who maintain that Morphy's blindfold feats are more brilliant than his usual mode of play. Paul Morphy, however, attaches very little importance to these displays, calling them mere tours de force, notwithstanding that they appear so wonderful to the multitude. To quote a favorite expression of his, one frequently used by him speaking on the subject, it proves nothing. A young gentleman has lately appeared somewhere in Germany, who, we are informed, has reproduced Morphy's performances at Birmingham and Paris. In fact, he is represented to have precisely reenacted the American's victory in the French capital, playing against eight strong antagonists, winning from six and drawing from two. There seems some method in this. At least I, for one, cannot help feeling suspicious, especially as the news is heralded to the world in connection with Morphy's name. I have seen one of the games played on the occasion, in which this young gentleman announces made in ten or twelve moves, an astonishing announcement, indeed, under the circumstances. The whole affair is beautifully managed throughout, and, whether playing blindfolded or over the board, marks the player as an amateur of the very highest order. Was the transaction bona fide? Now I do not wish to depreciate any man for the sake of benefiting another. Palmam qui meruit ferat. We know that Morphy has played against eight antagonists on two separate and most public occasions, and that the most eminent players in England and France were witnesses of his performance. If Germany does possess a second Morphy, let him step forward and prove his identity, and I, for one, will do him reverence. Cannot that responsible body, the Berlin Chess Club, tell us something tangible about him, and why it is that we never heard anything about him till now? Perhaps he is a new de Chapelet, and has acquired chess in forty-eight hours, on hearing Morphy's feats. The Berlin Schachzeitung can surely investigate this affair, and enlighten us on what seems very much like a ruse de guerre, an invention of the enemy. But let us return to Birmingham. Mr. Avery asked the young American what eight antagonists he would select, when the latter replied that it was immaterial to him, but that he should prefer all strong players. There were then in the room Misters Downton, St. Amant, Lowenthal, Bowden, Falkbeer, Bryan, and others of not much inferior strength, and Morphy was in hopes that many, if not all, of these gentlemen would offer themselves as opponents. But he was mistaken, and great difficulty was experienced by the committee of management in making up the required eight, who were, finally, as follows. Lord Littleton, President of the British Chess Association, Reverend Mr. Salmon, the strongest Irish player, Mr. Kipping, Avery, Wills, Rhodes, Carr, and Dr. Freeman. Paul Morphy was put up in a corner at the end of the room, and, everything being prepared for action, he threw open his portholes and gave the signal, pawn to King's Fourth on all the boards. Of course I am not going to mystify the general reader with the scientific details of the contest. I know that Lord Littleton had the first board, and received the deference due to his exalted rank, 
by being the first put hors de combat, and I remarked, too, that after his lordship had decided on his various moves, he would get up from his seat, walk towards the end of the room, and contemplate Morphy, as though desirous of seeing how he did it. And I know, too, that St. Amant was running from table to table, giving advice to one and the other, with his continual il va croquer ca, as an intimation that one or the other must look out for a pawn or peace in danger. And then, too, Morphy kept on checking Mr. Avery's king by moving his rook from the seventh square to the eighth, backwards and forwards, until that estimable gentleman declared that it was a drawn game when a bystander horrified him with the information that is only after fifty moves morphy will keep you there until he has kiboshed the others and then he will honor you with his sole attention but the game was finally declared drawn and at the finish how everybody applauded when morphy arose the vanquisher of six having only lost the game with mr kipping through an oversight at the beginning and how everybody was astonished when he stepped from his seat as fresh as a newly plucked daisy, and Mr. Staunton examined him closely to find traces of fatigue. Then, indeed, his not playing in the tournament was forgiven and forgotten. Then there was the soiree, and the capital matter-of-fact address of Lord Littleton. His lordship lauded Morphy to the skies, both for his blindfold and other play, and referred to the match with Mr. Staunton, trusting that Morphy would beat every other antagonist but that gentleman. Nothing more now remained to be done in England for some months to come, and Morphy returned to London to prepare for his campaigns on the continent. End of Section 7